Hey, Plastic Pills listeners, it's Matt here. I have a very interesting episode with you today. Uh, we have Nate Hawkman, who is a writer, amongst other things, for the National Review. He is also well-known as a kind of burgeoning conservative intellectual. Uh, a lot of you know that we tend to focus on critical theory here at Plastic Pills, which means that we are just decibly not a not-left uh, podcast, as we sometimes put it. But we thought it'd be interesting to bring in the other perspective today. So thanks a lot for being here, Nate. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm glad to be here. No problem. So can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to conservatism uh, as a young guy? Um, you know, it's not typically the path people end up taking, uh, since the kind of stereotype is that the younger you are, the more likely it is that you're going to endorse some kind of radical agenda. Uh, and in particular, if you're a student, uh, you're going to wind up probably supporting some kind of form of postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever it happens to be these days. <laughs> as uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, the esteemed JP put it. No, uh, yes. I think... You know, you said it's not a regular path, but it actually, my experience as a young sort of college-aged conservative uh, is that there is a significant number of um, sort of disaffected, usually young men, but not exclusively young men, mm -hmm. around my age group who have moved right in recent years, uh, even though they're like me, which means we came from sort of secular progressive backgrounds, you know, with democratic families in blue cities, but right around late high school, early college, uh, our, we had this really strong sort of counter reaction to what we saw as the sort of dominant uh, progressive culture in our institutions, like in high school and, and college campuses. Uh, and as a result, we started engaging with conservative ideas and moved right. And I think it's, it is perfectly consistent to, you know, to, to have that be happening as well as, like you said, the fact that a lot of young people are more, much more radical uh, than their parents' generation was. Because in general, my generation, what characterizes my generation across the board is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, both moving right, like I did, and moving left and becoming a radical, like, you know, like a lot of folks did, as you pointed out, uh, is, a, is a reaction to a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Now, I think my reaction is the correct one, obviously, or else I wouldn't have, have taken it. But I understand both sides. Uh, and, and moving towards conservatism, for me and a lot of my, my peers who had the similar experience, is uh, a re reaction to the sort of dominant progressive control of our institutions, which I see as having caused a lot of our contemporary problems today. Whereas becoming a radical, I think uh, one of my counterparts who's sort of a, on the radical left would say it's a reaction to capitalism and you know the rights control of, of our political institutions and stuff. So in general, uh, you know, you're right that uh, my generation is um, you know uh, much more radical than our, our previous counterparts. But that radicalism manifests both on the left and the right in interesting ways. Right. So you'd say that uh, if you're acting against what say, Thomas Piketty would call the Brahmin left and it's kind of ubiquity in cultural institutions, you're likely to move right. Uh, whereas if you're acting against the kind of neoliberal right, uh, mm -hmm. you're more likely to move towards people like Bernie Sanders or something like that. That's the idea. Yeah. Or Sorry, not just more. the neoliberal right, but, you know, capitalism and the sort of American or even Western system writ large. Um, and, and both, interestingly enough, are, are, I think, sort of reactions to a kind of neoliberal globalization. Um, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of someone on the right who's, who's critical of, of neoliberalism in a way that aligns me with people on the left sometimes. Um, but of course, they, you know, they lead to radically different conclusions. Okay. Now, out of curiosity, though, so these two options were available to you, right? Uh, you either go uh, towards the right or you, do, you go towards the left. Can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you towards the option you ended up taking? 
Yeah. So for, you know, through this, even the first year of college and, and this sort of began in, in mid to late high school, I still considered myself a left winger. Uh, I, <laughs> I voted for Jill Stein in mm. 2016. Mm. Um, so that just goes to show how, how much of a sort of transformation I've made in the last four or five years. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my parents are both progressives. I was raised in Portland, Oregon, which is not a staunchly right-wing city. Um, and I considered myself a liberal, but a liberal who was sort of increasingly critical of cancel culture, sort of the excesses of the campus left, uh, political correctness, wokeness, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and there's a lot of liberals who sort of have have some some critiques of, of those cultural institutions, for lack of a better word. Uh, but my criticisms of, of those things that were happening on my own side, you know, slowly expanded to encompass more and more of what I saw as the excesses of the modern left. And I think, um, you know, it's, it, it was sort of, it was the cognitive dissonance of sort of seeing myself on the left, but also seeing what the left was doing and the sort of left-wing cultural project more broadly as enormously destructive to, to America itself and, and even the West, uh, I think was, um, uh, you know, led me to engage with conservative ideas. And when I started taking conservative ideas seriously, you know, it was sort of like a, 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 um, a, a ball rolling down the hill, as it were, in, in terms of just sort of speeding up my, my conversion to conservatism. So it began as certainly as a reaction. Uh, and, and in that sense, I am sort of a reactionary, I suppose. Um, but it became, uh, it became sort of totalizing as I felt more and more alienated from my, who had pre the people who had previously been my ideological peers. How much of that do you think is a response to the Obama administration as a kind of locus point uh, of political symbology at the time? The reason I ask that isn't to say that, you know, you're reacting against Obama specifically, uh, but just because thinking back to kind of my own political conversion, uh, you know, you think about like the late 2000s, Bush was in power, there was a war on terror. A lot of people were really angry about that. And a lot of people in the millennial generation became radicalized because of it. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, uh, kind of at the tail end of the Bush administration, there was the Great Recession, as it's sometimes called right now, uh, which kind of threw in kind of anti-capitalist uh, elements to a lot of people's critiques of neoconservatism, right? So that's the way, the path a lot of people took. And I'm just wondering if responding to Obamism uh, with its kind of platitudinous liberalism, identity politics was one of the motivations for you? Well, I think I, I certainly was responding to Obamaism insofar as Obamaism was representative of the representative of this larger cultural trend. Uh, but I never felt like I was responding to Obama directly because I really yeah, wasn't of political consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, when Obama was president. In many ways, you know, my childhood and my, my political understanding of my childhood was formed by the fact that Barack Obama was president. But, you know, I, was, I wasn't old enough to vote for him in 2012. I, I barely turned 18 uh, in 2016. Um, so really, my political consciousness as an adult has been formed in the Trump era and by both, you know, the, you know, some of the insanity that's happening on the right, certainly, but also, uh, you know, an increasingly insane left that uh, I think in many ways was sort of radicalized and made, um, uh, you know, uh, much more uh, aggressive than they previously had been by Trump and Trumpism. So I think Obamaism certainly, uh, insofar as it increasingly characterizes the modern Democratic Party and its organs and our cultural institutions, is something that me and a lot of other young conservatives are uh, reacting against. Uh, but Obama himself has always been someone who's sort of in the background because really my first political memories that inform where I am politically today you know, started in the Trump administration. 
Now, can you give me an example of what you mean by the insane, the insane left, uh, you know, in your terminology, right? And that's a very loaded statement. And I think it's a very problematic statement. And we can get into that, right? But I just want to hear why you have that kind of conception uh, before we break mm -hmm. that down. Yeah, and I should, I, I think I, that was sort of, um, I, uh, I have lots of friends on the left and I, I should, uh, that was just sort of like a, a word that I, I use it speaking casually. I, I don't mean to suggest at all that the entire left uh, is insane. I, I don't think that's true. Um, but the, and, and again, all these things can be said uh, uh, to a certain extent about a, a segment of the right as well. Uh, but there is a, uh, there is what I would consider an insane segment of the modern left, uh, which is increasingly its ideological priorities uh, and its worldview are dominated by a sort of campus culture politics that is formed in, uh, you know, sociology classrooms or critical race and gender th theory studies mm -hmm. classrooms. And what is uh, is really worrying to conservatives like me who are, you know, interested in conserving the sort of traditional American way of life um, is uh, that those priorities in that campus-based worldview, uh, which I think is profoundly wrong for a variety of different reasons, um, is increasingly informing uh, not just the priorities of the Democratic Party, although that, that is, it's certainly happening there too, but also all of our other cultural institutions, the way that uh, the mainstream media sources like the New York Times and the Washington Post have shifted in their tone and the way they talk about issues in recent years. Uh, big business, increasingly, you know, corporate boardrooms uh, and, and the way that they approach these issues. Um, uh, you know, even uh, sort of um, to a certain extent, uh, uh, athletics and sports, right? Uh, this has become a, a significant issue. So uh, what it looks like to conservatives like me who are really sort of invested in, in, in cultural issues um, is uh, a really sudden, it feels like, takeover of all of our, all of the centers of power in American life, with the exception maybe of our political institutions, although that's changing too, um, by a, what was uh, until relatively recently, a, a relatively fringe campus ideology that was confined to you know, sociology classrooms and critical theory classrooms um, that is uh, now informing the way that, you know, the very sort of organs of power in American society work. Uh, and those are characterized by a, a bunch of different, you know, things that we can get into. But a perfect example is the sort of 1619 project um, and the way that uh, its narrative about America, which uh, was uh, rejected and condemned by historians from across the political spectrum, including some leftists, uh, is now echoed as fact and conventional wisdom by all of the narrative defining institutions in American life. And, and that's something that's really concerning. Let's just pause for a second and talk about like the purpose of pedagogy here, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, I think this is really at the heart <clears throat> of the dispute uh, going beyond like the kind of particular narratives that are put forward, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is we're a critical theory podcast, right? And we tend to endorse the idea that the point of pedagogy should be to inspire people to be critical uh, of existing institutions, existent narratives, ideologies, whatever it happens to be. And actually, that's sometimes why I'm sympathetic to a bit of what you're saying about uh, elite institutions and so on, or elite um, narrative makers, if you want to call it that, right? But there's a long, auspicious history of this going back to somebody like Socrates, right? And you think about, you know, him being put on trial for corrupting the youth of the city and so on. And the visual sense that I get is that many conservatives just don't tend to like this approach to pedagogy, this kind of critical attitude. Uh, it's not because they think that people shouldn't be critical, but because they think that it's essentially undermining certain belief systems that play an important role in preserving a certain sense of not necessarily uh, social order, but social solidarity, right? And I know you've talked about that before uh, in your writing, right? This impor the importance of patriotism for civic community and so on and so forth. So wouldn't you say that this is really just comes down in some respects to differences about how it is that we should be educating people, the kind of education we should receive, at least in the humanities and the social sciences? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that's certainly part of it. Absolutely, right? Conservatives are biased towards order. That's mm-hmm. always been a sort of foundational uh, part of conservatism. And when we see things causing disorder, we are predisposed to be uh, skeptical of it. That's mm-hmm. true. But I also think, uh, you know, the, it, it, at least for conservatives like me, I can't speak for the entire movement, although I, I know a lot of people who are, are like-minded. Um, it, it is about truth. And we see the purpose of a sort of traditional liberal arts education as seeking the true, the good, and the beautiful. And insofar as, and this is, you know, it's an interesting sort of uh, interpretation of Socrates, because insofar as seeking truth leads you to upset sort of traditional ways of doing things, that is a byproduct that I think sort of traditional defenders of liberal arts education um, are uh, are accepting of. And we understand that uh, seeking truth sometimes, uh, you know, leads to an upsetting of the traditional order. But the the, the question first and foremost is, is what we're teaching people true or is it at least the very best way to seek truth? And the fundamental objection to something like uh, critical race theory's view of America and American history is that it isn't true. And, and there's, there's certainly a lot of sort of secondary objections, which is that it does cause um, a, a loss of faith and confidence in the American way uh, and, and sort of radicalizes an entire generation to hate the country that they're going to inherit. But, but the fundamental objection is that it's wrong. It's not teaching the truth. And it is uh, in many ways actually constricting young people's ability to seek truth because it is this really sort of repressive ideological uh, 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 sort of um, structure that uh, doesn't allow for any sort of nuance whatsoever. Uh, and, and that is something that I think is, is the fundamental objection to it. Uh, but, but what you're saying is, isn't wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a secondary objection that is, is very real. I don't want to get us, uh, us to get into a very big, long philosophical debate about what is truth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The kind of Pontius Pilate question, because uh, we'll be here forever, right? Uh, and that's not what our kind of objective is. Uh, but I will say that I think one of the reasons why it is you've seen a lot of these traditions emerge, whether we're talking about critical race approaches to history, uh, or you're talking about you know Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, uh, and that kind of polemical approach, uh, is because this was a response to an earlier way of treating history as a kind of triumphalist story, right? And this is true in an American context, but I also think you can see similar kinds of history and similar kinds of ideas about social solidarity put forward in Canada, you know, where I live, uh, or the United Kingdom, right? And there was a lot of virtue in challenging these kinds of triumphalist narratives precisely because it exposed a kind of dark seamy underside to a lot of our history that a lot of many people just kind of wanted to either say didn't happen uh, or to say that it didn't really matter anymore, right? We just need to kind of move on, which of course is an easy thing to say as long as you're not continuously affected by the kind of seamy underside to those histories, right? So what do you think the balance should be then? Yeah, it's, it's another really good question. Um, and, and I think insofar as that that is the sort of reaction that drove the emergence of something like critical race theory, it's, it's legitimate to sort of, you know, I, not everything in critical race theory is wrong. Uh, my friend uh, Sam Cronin and I, uh, who I think you might know, uh, I recently wrote a piece for um, the print journal uh, Religion and Liberty talking about really critical race theory, and we were very critical. But one thing that we took care to, to say is that, look, some of the insights in critical race theory are true, right? Like the fact that just because legal discrimination isn't enshrined in American law anymore means that sort of persistent racial inequities don't exist as a result of sort of the, mm-hmm. the legacy of that historical discrimination. 
seems like common sense, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that sort of positionality and black people, you know, uh, are, are sort of often have more authority to talk about racial discrimination than white people who don't experience it seems like common sense. Mm -hmm. Insofar as those are sort of insights that critical race theory has introduced, I think we should take them seriously. Uh, the, the problem is that it is a totalizing ideology, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, starts from the premise that we should understand American history and, and you know, any history uh, more broadly, fundamentally in terms of uh, sort of uh, antagonisms between racial subgroups. And that, I think, is fundamentally the wrong way to think about, you know, human society itself, frankly, and misses tons of nuance and other factors um, that are that are important. And, and in, in that sense, I think it isn't helpful and it isn't productive. And you can you can the, we can take the insights that critical race theory offers that are serious without having to buy into the totalizing ideology. But it, it seems like the way that critical race theory is offered uh, uh, oftentimes today and the way that it makes people think insists on the totalizing ideology being the foundation of the way we think about America. So, you know, that's all the, the idea that it's a reaction to something, um, uh, something missing in American history, I think is true to an extent. I, I do think actually though, that there've always been voices in American history from the beginning that have sort of challenged dominant narratives. In many ways, there's nothing more American uh, than sort of uh, challenging power structures and authority. Uh, it's, it's what we were founded on. Um, and, and I, and I also think, and maybe this is just where there's a fundamental disagreement, like we shouldn't be triumphalist about history, but I do think actually America was a historical and remarkable and even exceptional achievement. Um, and you can't understand that if you just look at American history through a racialized lens at the exclusion of everything else. Uh, so I, I think there's something in the triumphalist narrative that's actually true. And uh, that's not something that, that the lens of critical race theory is even capable of acknowledging because it literally doesn't have the tools to think about it in those terms. And I should say that uh, in my own way, from a very different perspective, I can sometimes be critical of what um, we sometimes call trashing in the social sciences, right? Which is that the only purpose of pedagogy uh, or really theory generally, um, whether you're talking about theory in history or theory in law or whatever it happens to be, uh, is to be, you know, to trash something, right? To try to tear it down. Because I think it is important to actually take a dialectical approach in these instances and realize that a lot of the things that are problematic within our society, within our society uh, are also have a fundamental connection to things that are good in them, right? And uh, we don't necessarily want to throw away uh, the good when we try to trash the bad. Um, and I also just think that there's something to be said about trying to put forward constructive programs for improvement uh, rather than just relentlessly saying what's relentlessly saying what's wrong. But you know, kind of moving on from that a little bit, um, I just wanted to ask. So you believe that in some senses, the purpose of pedagogy should be a commitment to truth, right? Of course, there's many different ways that we can define truth, but in broad strokes, I agree with you, right? That however it is you want to conceive it, uh, when we're talking about the world, we want to try to depict it as accurately as possible. And when we're talking about moral issues, right, we should be trying to get as close to the best moral theory uh, or best moral account uh, that we can, okay? Um, but what, like, what kind of conservatism do you think speaks to that longing for truth? And the reason that I bring up this question is uh, there, are very, there are various forms of skeptical conservatism out there uh, that can really outdo the best postmodern theorists uh, in their reticence to embrace a kind of hardy conception of truth. Uh, Burkeanism is kind of soft skepticism, uh, but you can also find you know, iterations of um, this kind of skepticism towards truth uh, in people like Joseph de Maestra, to a certain extent in the kind of more radical works or interpretations of somebody like Michael Oakeshott, who I know that you're fond of. 
Uh, you can also see skepticism about the possibility of obtaining certain kinds of truth in the social sciences in the work of somebody like F.A. Hayek and so on, right? So what's the kind of conservative approach to truth that you want? It's a really good question. Um, and, and I don't think there's a perfect answer. You and I have gone back and forth about uh, Oakshot before, right? Who yeah. you mentioned, um, who is, who called himself a skeptic. Uh, yeah. yeah. He famously referred to himself as a, a skeptic who would do better if only he knew how, um, which I always sort of loved, but I, I think quote, yeah. it's a great quote. I, I think though that, that skepticism um, in conservatism often manifests as a sort of epistemological humility to mm -hmm. use a, uh, a, a sort of pretentious uh, way to frame it. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a humility about the limits of what we can know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that is exactly the same as at least the most radical strain of postmodernism, which is a disbelief in truth whatsoever. And in, oftentimes in, in, in conservative skepticism, that, manif that humility manifests as, as in, for example, with Hayek, a resistance and, and Oakshot and, and to a certain extent, Burke and all these other conservatives, a resistance to sort of grand schemes or a politics that is based on uh, sort of the pursuit of abstract ideas through central planning, mm -hmm. because it understands, and, and that, that was, that's how I would put it, because I think it's true, that um, there is a limit to sort of how much an individual human could know, right? You know, I think it's the famous Burke quote, which is that the individual is uh, uh, is ignorant, but the, the race is wise. Um, but that is, that's not quite the same thing as a disbelief in truth. Uh, and, and oftentimes a lot of these, uh, you know, conservatives are also Jews or Christians and take very seriously the idea of an objective truth. Um, they, they just resist a sort of a, a kind of approach to political transformation that assumes that humans are capable of, of these sort of grand schemes based on knowledge that there isn't really accessible to them. And that, that is, I think, an important difference between uh, someone like Oakshot and the postmodernists, even though they're often grouped together because they do share a lot of the same sort of skepticisms. Although I do think that there's something fruitful about putting these figures into dialogue with one another, right? Because certainly one of the interesting mm -hmm. things about epistemic skepticism, if we want to call it that, right, uh, is that it's neither the purview of the left or the right, if you look at it in terms of the history of ideas, right? There are profound and very interesting left-wing skeptics. You know, you could, some people trace this going back to Socrates, you know, that's a, like a controversial idea, right? Uh, but I would make the claim that, you know, somebody like say, Kant and his most radical, you know, um, in terms of like the critique of religion and so on, uh, you can situate him in that camp. Uh, obviously Karl Marx is kind of skeptical assaults on ideology. You know, he wasn't a big, big S skeptic, but uh, you know, since he had this commitment to a kind of dialectical theory of truth, but certainly he was undermining, uh, you know, official state ideologies and so on. Uh, all of this, you know, can be very productive, right? And there's also a long line of right-wing skeptics uh, that have very different um, political convictions, um, but will apply similar arguments to like what, to what you'll see on the left uh, to try to advance very different causes. But what I wanted to kind of move on to is very briefly talking about what it is you think is necessary in order to rejuvenate the conservative movement in the 2020s. So we saw Joe Biden won the election. It was highly contested. There are a lot of hurt feelings, uh, to say the very least, right? Uh, and for at least a little while, it seems like things have politically calmed down, right? Uh, at least on the left end of the political spectrum, right? A lot of people are unhappy with Joe Biden uh, on my end of the political spectrum, but they think, well, at least he's better than someone like Donald Trump, right? What do you think is going on on the political right right now? What do you think they should learn from uh, Trump's defeat? Uh, and also, do you think he'll be back in 2024? Uh, or do you think that the movement he kind of constructed is either going to carry on without him? Uh, or do you think it's going to mutate into something else? 
Well, I, I don't think those those last things are necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Mm-hmm. I think there, uh, it, it'll certainly be different. Um, the party and, and the movement will certainly be different than it was when Trump was the head of it. Uh, but it also is true that Trump uh, transformed the Republican Party and, and, and even the conservative movement, or at least the institutions of the conservative movement, uh, in important ways. And we're not going to go back to what it was like uh, pre-2016. And some of that is good and some of that is bad, in my opinion. Um, but I, I think, you know, I mean, okay, so first of all, it is not helpful for us to have the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world in our coalition. I think that some of the QAnon stuff is you know, massively overplayed by the media. The actual percent of Republican voters who care about QAnon or even know what it is is actually infinitesimally small. But you, you know, do have to admit the guy with the bullhorns charging through the Senate was a pretty vivid it was symbolism, it, right? I mean, it I, certainly was. And, and I don't want to downplay like weeks that, on yeah. end. You know, I go online and his face was just splattered on every newspaper, every Twitter feed, you know, that I could right. possibly see. Yes. Right? And you can't, you know, blame the media for sort of taking advantage of that. Like, like, as you said, it was a um, it was a sort of a shocking and, and striking image. And I don't want to downplay what happened on January 6th or, or any of those things at all. I'm not I'm not interested in downplaying them. They were they were serious. Um, but I also think like the the extent to which the sort of QAnon sort of crazy conspiracy theory stuff is actually represented in the institutional Republican Party is much smaller than I think a lot of sort of left-leaning media sources portray it as. But all of that was 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 trying to say, you know, insofar as the Republican Party hasn't taken a strong enough stance on, you know, rejecting it, uh, they should, and and they haven't taken a strong enough stance oftentimes. Um, so it makes the accusation that they are sort of a QAnon party um, uh, hold more water. So. That's just like a basic thing they need to do. And, and I think um, Trump not being the head of the party anymore uh, is is helpful in that regard because it makes it easier theoretically for them to do that because he was never really interested in disavowing anyone who liked him. If they liked him, you know, yeah. that was his only criteria. Um, the As far as the actual sort of conservative movement in the Republican Party goes in terms of politics, uh, I, I think – what I'd like to see is a is a reevaluation of our priorities. And this is where, you know, I've sort of broadly been referred to as a young person who's on the sort of quote unquote new right, right? And that's, you know, a lot of different people on the new right. There's the populists, nationalists, there's post-liberals, right? And I, I disagree with a lot of, uh, you know, the ideas that are coming out of there. But, but one place that I do agree with is the fact that I think the right's priorities uh, have been sort of out of whack for a couple of decades now, right? Like we have to stop being the party that just does ca- tax cuts and deregulation every time we get into power. Now, I generally like low taxes. I, I generally like a competitive pro-business environment, but those are not the sort of issues that are the, uh, you know, are, are the sort of most fundamental issues that are facing America today. Like what I see happening is a, is a disillusion of any sense of shared American citizenship whatsoever. And I think that there's a lot of different reasons for that. One is uh, uh, the radicalization of our education system. Uh, you know, uh, one is is the sort of leftwards movements of uh, sort of the narrative discourse defining institutions like the New York Times uh, and the sort of credentialing institutions that are in, in a sort of uh, a galaxy around them. But, but regardless of the issue, like that's what Republicans and conservatives need to focus on because you know, there. I genuinely think that if if we don't sort of try to find ways to develop a positive, shared sense of American citizenship again, there won't be a country to cut taxes in anymore. Eventually, like there, there, there's no sort of set rule that if Americans have no reason to feel collectively part of a country anymore, that they'll stay together. And that is is as someone who loves this country and wants it to stay together. Um, that's 
sort of uh, incredibly frightening to me. And the fact that Republicans are still sort of sleepwalking and are talking about, you know, tax cuts and, uh, you know, occupational licensing reform um, and are often scared to sort of wade into the, the sort of hotter, spicier cultural issues um, uh, while, while the sort of cultural left often eats their lunch uh, is, is, is really frustrating to me. And the best interpretation of Trumpism um, uh, and the most charitable one is that it was attempting to move the Republican Party towards a, that direction where it prioritizes those issues and it prioritizes sort of pushing back against the woke left. Um, now, there are a lot of there's a lot of baggage involved with that. Uh, and Trump was nothing if not a profoundly flawed mouthpiece for that. Um, but that is the direction that Republicans need to look to, because not only is it the right direction for, you know, for for actually sort of um, uh uh, the survival of the country itself, frankly, but it's also the one that proven, is proven to have a constituency. And that's the sort of energy that, that Trump t- tapped into. Yeah, I want to say, um, Corey Robin uh, in the New York Review of Books wrote a really good piece about this. Uh, obviously, very, very critical of the conservative movement as a whole. But one of the things that I always thought was interesting about his work is he kind of acknowledges the intellectual virtues uh, of many conservative figures, right? And he kind of castigates uh, a lot of lefter, uh, like left-wingers for not appreciating the fact that conservatives are able to mount an intellectual defense uh, of their positions in a lot of very creative, sometimes quite stimulating ways, right? So grant him all that. Uh, but one of the things that he says in this, piece, this op-ed, which I believe was in July, 2020, is that, yeah, you know, conservatives as a whole might have ideas, but the Republican Party is completely bankrupt of them, right? Uh, and he says, you know, if you think about the kind of policies that were pushed forward by the Trump administration. There was a lot of culture war rhetoric. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of stuff about build the wall. Uh, but the signature achievement of the Trump administration in terms of its actual policies were the tax cuts, right? Uh, which is pretty much bargain basement Reaganism, not just bargain basement Reaganism, but Clintonism, you know, uh, Bushism, whatever yeah. you want to call it, right? Rinse and repeat, you yeah. know, just sort of, yeah. Exactly. And he says it's quite surprising because if you look at the kind of most intellectually vigorous elements uh, of the Trump coalition, um, most of them were common good conservatives or post-liberals uh, who saw him, as you put it, as an imperfect vessel precisely to kind of shift the conversation away from Reaganism and tax cuts and big business towards issues that seemed of broader concern to the general population, right? And this was obviously written back in 2020, but seen with hindsight, uh, I do think that had the Republican Party been attentive to that kind of warning uh, coming from one of its enemies, uh, they might not have ended up losing uh, the election, right? Because my sense is, if you'd actually seen uh, Donald Trump push forward something like $2,000 checks for everybody, right? Uh, or pushing forward things like uh, criminal justice reform, um, or actually worked as a kind of economic populist who pushes socially conservative policies, it probably would have been very popular, right? And has been very yes. popular elsewhere, right? If you look at uh, Poland uh, or Hungary, right? But kind of moving on from that, right? Um, that was just me taking off my partisan hat and trying to look at things from the perspective of, you know, political outcomes, right? Every now and then I do kind of wear a political science hat rather than a leftist partisan one. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that's interesting to me about conservative intellectuals uh, like yourself is that you very rarely see uh, right-wing intellectuals and left-wing intellectuals dialoguing with one another, right? Uh, they tend to exist in their own kind of their hermetic bubbles, uh, you know, and part of this is just because the media landscape tends to encourage this, right? Uh, the kind of people who will read Jacobin or current affairs or whatever, aren't typically the kind of people who are gonna graduate uh, to reading the public discourse or the American conservative or whatever it happens to be, right? It just doesn't usually happen, right? Uh, and one of the kind of odd consequences of this uh, has been the kind of expectation uh, amongst intellectuals on both sides that the other side is just devoid of real ideas or right, devoid of people who can really defend their position in a substantive way. 
Uh, and I've seen, you know, this kind of rhetoric being thrown by both sides against one another, right? Uh, and I should also say it has deep roots, right? Uh, but just coming out from my perspective, uh, I think one of the reasons that this presumption occurs on the part of the left is we look at people uh, in the conservative movement and we don't necessarily see people like Patrick Deneen or Peter Lawler uh, or whoever it happens to be. Uh, we see people like Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro. Um, and we say, well, these are the intellectuals that they have. There's just nothing there, really, right? It's about a bunch of hot air, you know, that's gassed up by Fox News and conservative media. And, you know, we don't really need to be attentive to it. We just need to kind of dismiss it, right? Um, and I've engaged in these kinds of activities myself because I think these people are full of hot air, right? But, but how would you respond to this, right? Like, where do you think the most interesting conservative ideas are coming from right now? And do you know some interesting right-wing thinkers that you imagine would have something to say to someone who's looking for a kind of conservatism or is at least interested in conservatism uh, that goes a little bit beyond just your know, five-minute punditry. Yeah, uh, it's it's another good question. I think, I mean, it's 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 tough right now because I think there are super interesting and serious uh, and worth taking seriously uh, thinkers on both sides, um, but they are not the ones who are the sort of most public figures. And this is a larger issue with the way that our media works and the sort of uh, clickbaity culture that the internet has, has provided and, and, and social media and all these things, right? The people who rise to prominence, who gain the biggest following are the five minute pundit um, types. Whereas the people who are intellectually serious and actually require more brain power to sort of engage with um, are not. And if you're not deeply enmeshed in your side and understand these distinctions and you're on the outside looking in, mm -hmm. it's easy to miss that. I've always, and this is, I've said this many times on Twitter and, and even I think in some articles I've written, um, I have always loved the left, like the actual hard left. And I, I, I find engaging with and listening to and reading leftists and much, like, much, uh, the know your enemy podcast that's the big the one. know your enemy podcast uh is 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 one of my favorite podcasts uh and mm -hmm. you know obviously you and i have gone back and forth and in general i sometimes listen to the current affairs podcast mm -hmm. um it's a revolutionary left radio right like the actual serious leftists mm -hmm. um i find uh far more tolerable and intellectually interesting than the sort of new york times editorial board technocratic you know, progressives. Um, well, we can agree with I, that, certainly. You know. well, well, and this is one of the interesting things, all right? It's like the obviously leftists and conservatives, you know, disagree fundamentally about all types of things, but we actually, I think, have more in common for a variety of different reasons uh, than, 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 I, than, than at least conservatives do with a sort of like, you know, New York Times editorial board, mm -hmm. um, because we are both on the outside of mainstream institutions um, mm -hmm. and are sort of fundamentally making a critique of the status quo. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, technocratic center left. Can Paul I just Koopman's intervene there for a second? Uh, Cause I have a funny anecdote about this. So um, one of the guys I grew up with in Sitzville, uh, he was a kind of soft Trump supporter. He eventually uh, kind of decided he was too imperfect a vessel and kind of abandoned that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I had this amusing moment where I was chatting with him. Uh, Cause you know, we go way back and we still talk. And he was like, you know, this is the thing. I just sometimes wish Canadians would run a real conservative, you know, because if we ran a real conservative, then we would actually win. And I said, well, you know, that's what I've been saying for years, you know, as an NDP supporter, right? You know, we just need to run an actual democratic socialist and victory mm -hmm. will come to us, right? Uh, and then he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, well, that's what it's like when you're on the fringe, right? Right, exactly. No, I mean, and, and that's like, um, 
Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like we, uh, the more you sort of unpack this, the more you realize that we're, I think leftists and at least serious conservatives are sort of mirror images of one another. And that's not, I don't mean to suggest that we're the same because we're fundamentally different. Um, but it is uh, the same, yeah, dissatisfaction with the sort of way that our institutions are run, um, uh, being sort of outsiders looking in and, uh, you know, often critical of both party establishments and the way that they do things. Um, and, you know, I, I think on, on a more macro level, um, dissatisfied with the sort of amoral, value neutral, uh, sort of neoliberal um, world order, right? You know, both leftists and a lot of conservatives are critical of globalization. Now, not neoconservatives necessarily, but the certainly the sort of, I think, um, most intellectually energetic part of the conservative intellectual coalition that I'm sort of a part of, um, you know, both are, uh, you know, not interested in this sort of like technocratic value neutrality uh, that um, that governs the sort of, uh, yeah, Paul Krugman-esque approach to, um, to government, right? We both want to promote a positive vision of the, of the good. So, you know, all of those things I think are, um, you know, I, I think the left has a anthropology that is much more serious than the sort of center left, uh, which is the sort of kind of rationalist uh, that, that people like Michael Oakeshott critiqued. Um, so anyways, that I, I don't think, I don't know if that answers your question, but the, the, this, my own personal experience is that um, uh, there, if, if you sort of dig beneath the surface, beneath the Charlie Kirks or whatever the, the left-wing equivalent of Charlie Kirk is, um, uh, you know, the Michelle Goldbergs of the world, I suppose, um, the, there is a lot worth taking seriously on the other side. Um, and this is always why the really cheap sort of like, uh, you know, TPUSA style anti-socialist rhetoric, you know, anti-leftist, anti-commie rhetoric on the right is so dumb <laughs> because, yeah. you know, like they're, they, those are the people, right? Like the, you know, like the Know Your Enemy gang, for example, right? Who like are the most intellectually serious people on the left. Um, and uh, it's interesting if you actually care and you're not just interested in scoring partisan points, it's interesting to listen to them. Um, and, and yeah, as <clears throat> we just have to stop filtering things through these sort of partisan blinders and, uh, and, and looking at, 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 uh, intellectual debates as cheap partisan, uh, debates. And I think, uh, if, if you do that, there's a whole world of interesting things on the other side. Um, you just have to actually look for them in good faith. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should just, you know, uh, make clear my own kind of conviction uh, about this. Uh, so one of the things that I think is really true that you said is that you can sometimes learn as much from reading the other side, even about your own side, uh, as you can by reading the people who agree with you, right? And one example of this in my own kind of work is um, I became very interested in the kind of project of modernity and the overlap between things like liberalism and socialism, uh, you know, where they had disjunctions and where they broke from one another. Uh, and what I realized over time is actually there's a strong elective affinity between the kind of normative commitments that liberals have and the normative commitments that socialists have in the sense that both are emancipatory doctrines at their very core, right? Uh, and I didn't end up learning that from any liberals or socialists since most of the time they just end up yelling at one another. Uh, the person I learned that from was Martin Heidegger, right? Uh, because that's exactly what he says. And his kind of response was so to hell with both of them, right? Uh, <laughs> let, let them you know, both eat cake. Um, but, you know, evaluating that as an outsider who has this very reactionary worldview uh, allowed him to take a bit more of a dispassionate approach, uh, not dispassionate, uh, a little bit more of a impartial approach uh, to analyzing these two big ideologies. 
than either opponents within them would be able to achieve, right? So I just wanted to follow up with that though. And then again, ask, who do you think is a major intellectual figure on the political right today? Somebody that, you know, inspires you or somebody you think that has interesting new ideas uh, or somebody you think that is approaching things in a way that hasn't really been conceived of before? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. And this is where I think, I, I think you know, Robin is fundamentally wrong. And that's too bad because he's, in, he's usually an astute critic of the right. Um, but the idea that, uh, you know, the, the conservative movement is, is uh, intellectually bankrupt because of the sort of top figures. And I don't think he said the conservative party. movement. He said the Republican Party. Uh, okay, that's a, that is a little more fair. A clear distinction between them, right? Where he said that yeah. essentially conservative intellectuals have plenty of ideas. And I think one of the, one of the things that he made is that, uh, points that he made is that you don't actually see them reflected in the Republican Party platform, which tends to be, again, uh, a lot of Reaganism. You know, uh, well, in terms of the policy yeah. objectives that it wants to yeah. achieve. I think the, the institutional sort of Republican establishment, which is still very powerful in terms of its it's the power that it exercises over the party's policy priorities, I think there's there's a case to be made. But you know, for all of his his manifest flaws, someone like Josh Hawley is an is an intellectually serious person. You know, he's he wrote a biography of Teddy Roosevelt back in 2012. You know, this is not yeah. just a marriage of convenience for him. This is a sort of type of conservatism he's been interested in advancing all the way back when Paul Ryan was the face of the Republican Party, right? Um, you know, he gave, gave a speech to the National Conservative. You say that like it was so long ago, but like... <laughs> well, for me, it was, you know, it was half my life almost. Yeah, um, I guess so, that's true. Uh, uh, but yes, you know, there are a lot of people. I, I think Ross Douthat is someone we, we talked about briefly uh, at the New York Times, um, is is someone that, that everyone should read. And I think his columns um, have a way of explaining conservative ideas to people uh, in a way that isn't, doesn't sort of, sound objectionable to mm -hmm. to progressives and that's a, a skill that he has and um he is someone who's sort of been an interesting thinker on a lot of these issues Yuval Levin is a is a sort of very famous person uh, uh in the sort of conservative intellectual circles uh again that everyone should read he's a perfect example of someone who uh you, if you're a leftist you can learn more about your side by reading him because he takes care to really explain the philosophical roots of our debates um in ways that that are worth um uh, taking seriously. And, you know, the, the people like, you know, I, I think some of the people at Claremont are often, uh, you know, have ideas that I disagree with, but they are having these really robust um, uh, uh, intellectual and philosophical debates uh, that are, are rich and fundamentally de uh, deal with really important issues that I think are worth taking seriously. So I think both the American mind and the Claremont review of books and all of the people that are associated with them um, publish routinely super high quality essays and arguments um, that are that are, are worth uh, reading for everyone. So those are just a few people um, I can go on, but I think, uh, you know, if you start with those and, and you're a leftist, um, all of those people and those figures offer, they're not the sort of uh, stale neoliberal, neoconservative sort of, um, uh, you know, tax cuts and deregulation is the end, be all end all of politics. Like these are people who are dissatisfied with that approach to politics and are trying to develop a sort of more coherent, positive vision of what government is for and how we can advance a positive vision of, of, of the good uh, in the way that I think a lot of leftists do in a different way. Just turn around on the other side. Uh, what leftist intellectuals do you like to read uh, or who do you learn the most from? Uh, now, I know you don't like the Frankfurt School very much, probably in part because the writing is dense and difficult uh, mm -hmm. to get through, at least in terms of like their aesthetic value, uh, but who really resonates with you? Well, it's actually interesting because I mean, I don't like reading the Frankfurt School, uh, but I've, I've, I've written a, a couple long essays actually about this. Like I actually do think that their political philosophy, if you can wade through 
the you know what I think is often sort of performative and unnecessary language. Um, there there are serious insights that that I do actually like. Um, and uh, I've, I wrote an essay for uh, ISI a, a few months ago now, um, comparing the Frankfurt School to Robert Nisbet, who's sort of a communitarian conservative uh, thinker, and, and there are a lot of overlap. So I, I, I do actually like the Frankfurt School in terms of their their theory, if not, uh, you know, um, the, the way that they present it. Uh, but in contemporary terms, I mean, I, I read you all the time, and I like listening to your podcast, and I, you. You know, I, I think you're uh, someone that, uh, you know, one of the things that makes you um, appealing to conservatives is that you are rarely polemic, uh, and your critiques are always, you know, any sort of intellectually honest, um, good faith conservative listener recognizes that your critiques of conservatism are rooted in, you know, not bad faith arguments. Like you're really taking conservatives seriously and trying to understand conservatives as they understand themselves. Um, and that to a conservative makes, uh, your sort of message and your critiques much more interesting to listen to. And I feel the same way about the know your enemy guys, you know, yeah. like the know your enemy guys, you know, their podcast um, is very intellectually serious and rigorous. Um, and, you know, they really do their homework and it's a, for people who don't know, for listeners who don't know, it's a left wing podcast about the conservative movement um, and their critiques of conservatism. While of course I don't always agree are rooted in, um, you know, not, they're not just doing hit pieces, you know, they're, they're, they're really taking conservative ideas seriously and then offering a left wing perspective on why they're wrong. Um, and, and that for conservatives is really interesting in the same way that left wingers uh, can learn more about the left by reading the right, uh, you know, right wingers, I think can learn more about the right by listening to sort of astute, uh, left wing critics of the right. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, Bono once said, you know, know your enemies for they will define you. Right. And, um, while I don't necessarily like a lot of the music U2 has produced over the last couple of years, I thought that's always wrong true. Do you have any last words that you'd like to say to the people at Plastic Pills? Uh, nope, just thanks again for having me. That was a lot of fun. No problem. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Nate. That was a really informative discussion. Uh, I know, again, uh, we typically espouse uh, unambiguously progressive viewpoints on this, on this channel, so I think some of our listeners might find it refreshing uh, just to hear a little bit about the other side for a change. <laughs>